Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Good. Good. Um, hey, all right. So I'm, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 this morning. We're going through the book of Romans. If you're new with us, we're going verse by verse. And so today we start in verse 12 of chapter uh, 8. And I'm going to go ahead and read it right now for you. And then we're going to jump into this. I'm excited about what, uh, what's about to happen. So uh, let me read, starting in verse 12. This is what Paul says to the church in Rome. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. Praise God. Romans 8 is such a sweet book. If you guys, it's such a sweet chapter in Romans. If you've been tracking with us at all, uh, what we've been doing is just walking through this book, and there's times where we'll zoom in and we'll cover all of Romans 6 in one week, and then there's other others chapters that we have really slowed down on and this is one of them we're going to spend four weeks this is the second week in this one chapter uh, and here's here's what's going to happen here's what we're going to see uh, this morning we're going to see that the gospel changes everything right we're going to see this idea that the gospel changes everything uh, and, and that's been something we've seen all throughout this book already that's been a, a, a truth all throughout Romans all throughout the New and Old Testament all throughout our faith this idea that the gospel changes everything and so obviously before we leave this morning we're going to get even more specific in a specific way that the gospel changes everything but before we get real specific I want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about um, and I want to make sure we understand that the implications of the gospel are massive and widespread and, and change everything in your day-to-day -day life and affect everything. Um, my favorite illustration of this, of, of my life being changed, is um, not only my marriage to my wife, Danielle, but also um, about seven and a half years ago, we got pregnant. And so there's a sonogram picture I want to throw up here. This right here, when we found out we were uh, pregnant with Charlie, uh, was, a, was a big deal. And so we were pregnant with Charlie, and we had a son, right? We had this son. Uh, although we had a kid, it was still not fully matured, right? And so that, right, seven and a half years later, hey, Charlie, you want to come up here, bud? <clears throat> come on, buddy. We made this decision like five minutes ago. Sorry, AV guys. This, guys, is my son. Now tell him your name. What's your name? Charlie. Charlie. Yeah, give it up for Charlie. <laughs> Charlie, what is, what is your name? What does Charlie mean? Charlie. 
It means free man, right? This idea that Charlie has been made by God, but he is made to be a free man, which is something we're going to be talking about. So what I want to illustrate with this picture, we had all these cute pictures to show, but then when my kids walked in, I was like, I'm just going to yank him up on stage. I got another son, two miles, who's not quite ready to come up on stage. Right, bud? Hey, bud. Um, and, uh, and so I just want you to see something, right? I want you to see how this is life-changing, right? This idea of going from, you know, this, this embryo, this beautiful little baby inside of a womb, and then becoming this tiny little baby, and then becoming uh, now a, a seven-year-old first grader, uh, changed everything for us. Thank you so much, buddy. I love you. You can run off this way. Mama's over there. But you got to go this way. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Charlie. Give it up for Charlie. Nice. That kid's amazing. So that kid changed my life, right? That kid drastically changed my life, both of those boys, that woman, um, too. And, and what happened was now everything is seen differently, right? Now everything is seen, and parents in this room or streaming understand that, that concept of, man, everything shifts. Now all of a sudden, my world is not about me and my wife anymore. It is about these crying things that poop in their diapers, and, right, and then they grow into little humans who run on stage. And, right, it, it's, it's this life-changing thing to where now all of a sudden I see everything through this new lens. And the implications of the birth of my son changes how I do everything in my life. It changes my decision-making, it changes how I spin, it changes everything in my life. The gospel is more impactful, more practically, not just theologically, spiritually impactful. It is more practically impactful in my life than my kids, than my wife, than anything else. The gospel changes everything. And so often, the gospel is this thing that has to mature in us, right? Those who have put their faith in Christ, a lot of times, man, you've got the gospel, you are saved, but you're it's still just this tiny little seven-month-old child in a womb, right? Or it's a two-year-old, or it's a seven-year-old, or it's a 40-year-old, right? And, and so this maturity of the gospel is going to impact how you live your life. Uh, that's massively important, and that's the overarching theme of Romans, and specifically what I want to do is I want to zoom in on these verses that I just read, and I want to show you a specific way of how the gospel changes everything. So in order to do that, we've got to make sure we land and understand the gospel well. So let me read again for you verses just 12 and 13. Because what Paul does is he says, here's the gospel in 12 and 13. And then 14 through 17, he says, here's a really specific, incredibly practical implication. If that is true, then it changes this. Verses 12 and 13. If you remember, this is what he says. He says, so then, and the so then is referencing the the last seven and a half chapters of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of what Jesus has done for us. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul uses this language of death and dying and being dead to ourselves a lot in Romans, and specifically here in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, the gospel unpacked, the most clear definition of the gospel, I would say, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul gives just a real simple definition. I, I think that word gets thrown around a lot. I've already said it at least a dozen times in the first five minutes of this sermon. It gets thrown around a lot, right? There's a lot of confusion, but it's the thing that changes everything. We got to have a real clear understanding of what it, the gospel, is. And in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, this is how Paul defines it. 
in the first four verses of chapter 15. We'll throw them up on the screen. This is what Paul, the same author in Romans, also wrote this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So he's saying, hey, let me remind you of that massively important gospel that I preached to you, that you live by, that saves you, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he defines it. You ready? For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is in the most simple form Paul's flushing out, his fleshing out of what the gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, burial, and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a historical event that we believe, that I believe with all of my soul, a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. That even, even demons believe, right, understand that historical event. They know who Jesus is. They theologically would say, yes, I know the gospel. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But it is something different, and the implications are massively different for those who actually put their faith in that gospel. And so this historical event that we believe happened, that 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish carpenter who lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He was God in the flesh. And then he hung on a cross and died. We believe that Jesus then rose from the grave and was resurrected. If we don't believe in the resurrection, then we can throw all this out, right? We believe that he then took on the sin and the penalty that we all deserve and rose again and paid for it. And so that gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, that historical event has not only spiritual theological implications, it has crazy practical implications in your life and how you navigate the young adult world that you live in. In every way, the gospel uh, it, it makes an impact and should make an impact and should have implications. Okay, so <clears throat> this idea of the gospel faith is this idea, even he says in chapter eight, this idea that we come to die, right? We talked about it in chapter six too, that to put our faith in the gospel, not just a theological, historical understanding, but to put our faith in the gospel is the idea that you say, my life is not my own. I'm laying my life down and I'm putting my faith in Christ. I'm no longer going to try to, to do this, to be spiritual enough, to be religious enough. I'm gonna surrender my life. And it becomes, this, it becomes this little seed that grows and grows and grows and grows. And it's this inevitable thing that will have more and more implications. And, and, and when you first receive and truly put your faith in the gospel, it's this, this tiny little baby faith and it grows and grows and grows and grows. It is a call to lay your life down. Um, the gospel is the foundation of our depth, too, and I think this is really important. If you ever uh, find yourself at a church or a ministry um, that is preaching something and calling it depth and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the gospel's good, but the gospel is kind of the thing that you need to be converted with, right? You put your faith in Jesus and you pray the prayer, and now it's time to move on to varsity stuff. If you ever find yourself in a ministry or a church or sitting under a teacher who, who says that, um, I would say flee, Right? The idea that, that there is the gospel, which is for conversion, and then there's other deeper truth for more mature believers is a, is a lie. All of our depth, all of our maturity, if it's not tied to the gospel of what Jesus has done and my faith and, and surrender of my life to that truth, then it's tied to something that will one day let you down. Um, so 
so if you hear a sermon or you want to learn, I mean, how do I date in a godly way? That's great. That's a very practical, maybe, maybe there are believers who say, man, I really want to figure out how to date in a godly way. Great. But the truth and depth and meat of that should be tied to the gospel. Uh, if you want to learn, man, how do I really get over my, my anxiety, right? I'm struggling with anxiety. That's good. I, I really need some kind of some deeper meat to chew on to really wrestle through freedom from anxiety. That's great, but it should be tied to the gospel. It is our foundation for maturity. It's our foundation for growth. And so the rest of these verses I'm going to read are the implication that we're going to see this morning. I want to lay the foundation, and this is about the gospel, and then I want to show you where Paul is saying that if this gospel, if Jesus really is who he said he was, and if you've really put your faith in him, here is one of those implications that will affect everybody, should affect everybody in this room if they really have ears to hear it. Verse 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, right, all of those who have actually put their faith in Jesus, surrendered to his Spirit. For all of those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be, that we may also be glorified with him. Here's the implication. The implication of this morning is that the gospel frees us from fear. Uh, that the gospel frees us from fear is the truth of what we see in these passages. That because of the gospel, we are set free from the bondage of sin and slavery and even specifically this idea of fear. And so I want to talk for a second about fear and then I want to practically walk out what's it look like to be set free uh, from fear. Because I think there's a misconception where if we say, okay, if this morning is about being set free from fear, cool, do I really wrestle with fear, right? Is this really an implication that this morning everyone needs to be set free from fear? Um, I think a lot of times we can put fear in the category of just being scared of a monster in a closet, right? Or that fear is just this thing of like, okay, well, sometimes I get really scared if something's bad. I think fear is way more entrenched and enrooted in our lives than we would give credit for, right? I, I think there is, a, there is an absolute fear that so many of us have that is paralyzing of what other people think of us. What other people think of us, there is fear there. There is fear of failure, of not measuring up, of not being good enough, of, of wasting college or wasting your parents' investment in you or, or just coming up short. There is a fear of being alone, right? And this fear becomes this slavery that this passage talks about, that if we're really in tune with ourselves and, and really sensitive to saying, okay, intuitive to know, man, there is absolutely fear that drives our decisions that it has us in slavery, right? And that, that fear produces sin. So, for example, uh, let's say you're in this room and you really have a fear, whether it's conscious or subconscious, of being single forever, right? That maybe you are in a season of life where you feel like all of your friends have boyfriends, and long-term boyfriends, and maybe you're an upperclassman, and, and you had expectations. Maybe this isn't a fear for you now. Um, I, I walk with a lot of young adults. Maybe it will be a fear in the next five years where you feel like, I don't want to be alone. I feel like everyone else around me has these people, and I just haven't found my person, and it is, and it is a fear-driven decision 
where I have seen so many people, because of the slavery of fear, compromise and make a lifelong commitment or covenant or even enter into a super unhealthy relationship because their fear of being alone is more powerful than their fear of actually doing what they're designed to do and living rightly. And so you see, fear in that way produces this slavery, right? Maybe it's a fear of failure, right? This fear of, uh, of, of not succeeding. I mean, there are so many people I know in this ministry, in this room right now, who are such high-achieving people. If you are smart and you are incredibly capable, and I think there's a lot of you who would be paralyzed at what if, I'm, what if I can't make it? What if I can't be successful? What if all of those kind of goals that I've set, what if I can't reach my goals? And that fear can produce sin where you say, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cut corners. I'm going to do whatever it takes to succeed. I'm going to compromise my integrity. I'm going to manipulate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut some corners and compromise my integrity driven by my fear of what if I'm not going to be as successful as I wanted to be, as I thought I should be, as I anticipated myself at this point in my life. And so you see, fear is all throughout our lives, guys. It is something that, that has us and is trenched in our hearts. And I think our depth to understand the cure of it will be directly tied to your maturity and ability to identify where that fear in your life specifically is. Um, man, we also fall into this trap of we think fear, we think of it as something that is maybe, maybe kind of done to us or circumstances we're in as opposed to the reality, fear being this choice we make, right? It, oftentimes we think, oh, I'm scared because of circumstances or there's fear because somebody has done something or circumstances have happened and, and I'm in a certain situation as opposed to the reality of it's easy to say, well, it's not really my fault and we don't take ownership for our fear. The reality is fear is a choice you're making, right? It's a choice that you are making in the same way um, that there could be somebody who has uh, envy, right, and envious thoughts and jealous thoughts that come into their head, and they can choose to sit on those, or they can choose to say, no, I'm not going to be jealous, right, or, or lustful thoughts could come in and say, okay, I'm going to choose to sit on those, and I'm going to choose to dwell and act on those, or I'm going to not and reject those, and so that's what this passage is going to talk about is, man, do we choose to continue to walk in fear, or do we choose to take the option that has been given to set us free from that? So freedom, where does it come from? Right? Pretty important. Where does that freedom come from? The freedom from fear straight out of Romans chapter 8 comes from this idea of spiritual adoption. Spiritual adoption allows you to choose your father who has adopted you over fear. L let me read verses 15 again. For you, listen to this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption to which we cry, Abba, Father. The spiritual adoption that happens in our life uh, changes our ability to be set free. It allows us the ability to be set free. And so there's some implications of spiritual adoption. So the first one is it frees us from the slavery of sin and fear. So spiritual adoption is this idea that God, for whatever reason, in his grace and mercy and kindness and love, saw fit through the gospel, through the payment of Jesus Christ, and those who put their faith, their active faith in Jesus to adopt 
us as his sons and daughters, right? That idea, and a little rabbit trail, because I think it's important, especially to the ladies in the room. You'll notice this passage says sons, right, and not sons and daughters, but that's very intentional. It's not a chauvinistic thing. They didn't forget about you. Uh, in the context of what was happening in Rome, uh, to be adopted as a daughter, unfortunately, meant something totally different. It meant that you didn't have an inheritance, right? It meant that, that women were functionally property, and way before uh, women's rights movements, the gospel came along and said, no, 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 anyone who puts their faith gets the same right as what they would have contextualized as sons. Men, women adopted as full heirs. And so women, don't, don't feel forgotten here. Feel, feel loved that you have a Bible and a truth and a, and a gospel who way before it was popular to not treat women as property said, no, no, they are also co-heirs. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ gets to be at the same level, that co-heir sonship which would have been so, uh, so controversial at the time. But I just don't want you to miss that. <clears throat> this idea of freedom from, from slavery, of, of sin and fear. Spiritual adoption um, is this idea and this ability where God brings us into a relationship. Uh, and in doing that, everything is changed. Uh, my parents, excuse me, uh, my parents uh, are missionaries. And for 10 years, they worked uh, in Russia at orphanages, specifically in this town called Voronish, uh, Russia. And in my, um, in my early 20s, they moved to Voronish and worked on a transitional center for orphans from Russia who were graduating the orphanage at either 16 or 18 and weren't adopted, which is the majority of cases, right? Most kids in that orphanage system aren't actually adopted. They just age out depending on the orphanage, and then they're just on their own. And so they worked on a transitional center. So we have countless stories of countless orphanages that are so disturbingly sad, so disturbingly sad of what was happening, right? There's a specific orphanage that I visited um, that I remember this, there was an outdoor, the only bathroom was this outdoor facility, kind of this wooden facility with, with holes in it, um, and the only way you could go in, the smell was so bad that you had to have, uh, you had to put like Vaseline under your nose to be able to enter in there because the smell was so bad that you would throw up just going into the bathroom if you weren't already conditioned for that kind of environment. Um, I mean, the, the lack of hygiene and the, the food, but, but also there was a specific place that was later uh, kind of discovered um, by the, the staff at this specific orphanage uh, carried on abuse of every kind uh, in that orphanage. And that trickled down. So then the older kids who had only known abuse only knew how to interact with younger kids in abuse. And these really, really dark, dark places. Um, and there are stories of people, whether Russian, sweet Russian families who would come to these orphanages and, and meet these kids and fall in love, or even some friends of my parents who would come over and, um, and, engage in adoption processes, a pastor and author named Russell Moore who adopted uh, a kid out of this orphanage system. And one of the craziest things was these awful places, right? These orphanages that were horrible, horrible places. They'd be adopted by this loving family, right? A mother and a father and a home and running water and parents and grandparents and Christmas presents and, and central AC and family holidays, and education, and dinner tables, and they would go and they would adopt these kids, and they'd, 
you know, meet with them a few times and build these bonds and connections while they're filling out paperwork and waiting for more paperwork and the month-long, months-long process of all of that. And then finally, the papers would be signed. Kids would be adopted. And they would take the kid and they'd hug him. And he, he understood the concept of adoption. And he was so excited that these sweet people were finally going to adopt him. He was going to get these new, this new mom and dad that he'd never experienced. And he would go and he would get in the car. And as they would drive away from the orphanage, <clears throat> as they drive away from the orphanage, he would cry and scream, reaching back for the orphanage. Because it's all he knew. And it's all they knew. And they would be terrified to say, wait, wait, wait. Now we're actually driving away from this complete hellhole that he had lived in or she had lived in. And as their new loving parents are driving them away, they're screaming through the back window, reaching back for what was so awful and destructive. And it's a common thing uh, in adoptive parents that adoptive parents have to experience that and go through counseling. And, and even I've got some friends who adopted a, a baby who was malnourished, but they adopted her by, by the time she was like 14 months. But all throughout her, her early years, she would hide her food, right? She, she's adopted here in a family in Fort Worth, Texas, with plenty of resources. And yet she would hide her food in her high chair in places because there was this inherent thing of, I've got I've to save some food because this might not be, I might not get another meal. And it was just ingrained, and it is ingrained in us. There's so many of us that are still slaves to this fear and this sin, and we've been adopted, but we're still reaching back for what was just abusive and dark and awful, and we reach back for what we knew and what was, what was comfortable, even though it was destructive. And we reach back for that, and yet what spiritual adoption is is the idea of we have, you have been given something new. You now have this idea, right, that spiritual adoption, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't just take you away from the things that are scary, right? It provides us with something that is far more powerful. S what spiritual adoption does, let me say that again, is it doesn't just take us away from the things that are, that are scary, but it also provides us with something that is far more powerful. And so in your life, if you think about that, if you have been spiritually adopted, it doesn't mean that you won't experience hard, scary things that will induce fear in your life. It doesn't mean that, oh, I've been spiritually adopted, so I'll never get triggered anymore. No. It doesn't mean that those things are all removed from your life. What it means is you've now been given something more powerful than those things. You've now been given a father who is way more powerful than anything that could trigger you. So how it plays out, man, let's say you're a 28-year-old, 28-year-old young woman and you're single, and the fear of, wait, I thought I would be married by now, and that paralyzing fear that says, man, I, I thought I was going to be married by 28, and I'm not, and I'm scared that, wait, maybe I'm going to be alone, Right? Maybe I'm going to be alone my whole life. And maybe all of my expectations from the time I was a little girl and I played dress up with a wedding dress and I had little baby carriages. and I, maybe, maybe all of those expectations aren't going to come through. And all of that fear, instead of taking it away, what spiritual adoption says is it gives you a father that you can climb into his lap and say, Abba, Father. And he comforts. And he says, what I have for you is better. And what it looks like in the gospel, if the gospel is to lay my life down, then it looks like, okay, I don't need to compromise and take my life back and just find some schmuck and marry him to try to fit my expectations. 
I can lay my life down and trust that God will, will be enough and trust that God will walk through those steps and, and who knows, provide those things. God wants that for us. It looks like um, maybe a fear of failure where you just feel paralyzed that, wait, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not going to be good enough. I can't achieve what I wanted to. That goal that I want, I can't quite get. And instead of taking away that goal, what spiritual adoption does is it says, hey, you've got a father who's still in control even if you aren't good enough. And yeah, you might not achieve your goal. I'm not going to stand up here and say everyone's going to get all of the desires of everything they want. I'm going to stand up here and say what the scriptures say, which is you have a father, an Abba father, who is more powerful and who is good and who will meet you in that place, and who will comfort, and who will provide freedom from fear. Even if circumstances that you don't like still exist, provide freedom from fear because he is better. Spiritual adoption frees us from that slavery of sin and fear when we choose him over what we camp and consume that consumes us. Another thing it does is it unites us with a living father. A loving father, rather. Spiritual adoption is going to unite you with, it sets you free from fear that you feel stuck in, from anxiety that you feel stuck in. It sets you free from that, but it also then unites you with this spiritual father. And that that verse uh, that I just referenced, verse 15, right, that we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And if if none of you have ever unpacked or studied the Hebrew word Abba, Right, what that is, is it's a Hebrew word that is, um, it's the impersonal word for a father, right? It's the very casual word for, for a father. Um, it, it would functionally be translated for us dad or daddy. And so here, we are given this adoption to the God of the universe, all-powerful, uh, in awe and wonder and majesty, who holds all things together, and we are given the ability as adopted sons and adopted daughters to approach that God with that level of intimacy. To be united with that powerful God with a level of intimacy that here Paul describes as being able to call that God, Abba, Dad, Father. And the last thing it does, this spiritual adoption, It not only sets us free, it not only then unites us after it's set us free, it unites us in this intimacy with with a a good God, a loving God, but it also provides us with an inheritance. And I already referenced this idea that, man, we're all co-heirs, men, women, anyone who has truly put their faith in Jesus, we're provided with this inheritance. And so if you think about this idea and this truth and what the gospel is and what the implications of that gospel are here for you this morning. What the gospel is, what Jesus has done, putting my faith in that, which then sets me free from fear, unites me with a loving father who I can approach, and then it also guarantees me an inheritance. And what that does is it gives me confidence as a believer. It gives me confidence in the midst of unresolved situations, in the midst when I'm still waiting for the answer. Not only is he a loving father who I'm in his lap being comforted, but also I have this truth that I'm a co-heir with Christ, right? That, that verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our witness that we are children of God and if children, then heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. And verses 14 through 17 of this chapter, if we believed, if we would apply 
if we would trust the freedom from fear that it would set us, set us loose in. Provides us with this inheritance eternally. Puts all of this in perspective. Puts all of my fears of, man, this big test I've got. Take your test seriously, right? Take your test seriously. I'm not saying blow it off. But this huge test that, that should be respected instead of respecting it because paralyzing fear. Uh, by the way, a global pandemic, right, that we live in, which, make no mistake, should be respected. We respect what's going on with COVID. But I don't have to live in constant fear, paralyzed in this world. My relationship status, I, I desire something that God desires for me. But maybe if you don't have the relationship status you want, you don't have to be paralyzed by the fear of what that is because you put in perspective the co-inheritance that I have is for eternity. For eternity. Would we see this and have his perspective? And so one application, but one real practical thing, what do we do with this? Hopefully we believe, hopefully we have ears to hear and we believe it. And then we proclaim it. That's what we do. What, what do we do with this spiritual adoption? We proclaim it. Actually, scratch that. We don't. That's the wrong sequence. That's the wrong sequence. That's not what we do first. What we do first this morning is we make sure we've experienced spiritual adoption. That's what we do first. We don't proclaim it yet because not everyone has been spiritually adopted. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ have been spiritually adopted. And so actually, before we start proclaiming it, before we start worshiping and claiming it and, and standing on the truth that we have an Abba Father who's, who's better than the garbage we've been pulled from, before we start proclaiming it, we've got to check ourselves and say, have I really put my faith in Jesus Christ? Not do I acknowledge the gospel, do I understand it historically, do I believe it happened, but have I said, Lord, I lay my life down to you. My life is no longer my own. That's where we start. And for those who have done that, if you're here this morning or you're watching this morning and you've never really done that, you've checked the box, you've acknowledged it, maybe you've prayed a prayer one time, maybe you prayed a prayer a hundred times, but you, you're not sure that you've really put your full faith in that, man, don't move on to any other application point until you make sure you get that right. Now come and talk to us, DM us, um, reach out to us. We'd love to get coffee with you and actually walk through what that looks like. And then you can stand in assurance of your salvation and grow from there and proclaim your adoption over your life for the rest of your life. My kids changed everything for me. Right? Charlie's name, it means free man because our prayer for him as, a, as an infant before he was born, as a seven-year-old, as a 37-year-old, will be that he would live a life and walk in freedom. Sin and fear is going after you guys. But you have been adopted. Would you walk in the freedom of the adoption that's already been placed before you? Let me pray and then we will respond by proclaiming this. Father, thank you. Thank you for the way you have adopted us. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for Romans 8. Verses 12 through 17, Lord. We have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but this spirit of adoption. And so, Lord, would my brothers and sisters in this room, uh, would we get to practice that now? Would we put that in practice now, believing what you say? 
believing the truth of your word, standing on it and proclaiming over ourselves in all of the shallow places that we say we believe, but God, we still needed to take deeper root. Would we be able to do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit? That we don't just sing lyrics, but that we proclaim truth to doubting hearts like our own. And then, Lord, we leave this place today and would continue long after the music has stopped to proclaim this truth to when we to when we walk into that fear, when we feel attacked by that fear, when we feel stuck in that fear, that we would remember whose we are. Would you do the work that only you could do? In the name of Jesus, amen.